Right here is the agreement. It's very simple. It's right here. And in here is everything you want to talk about. Done. It's done. It's done. We are on track this year to have more than a million people come across our border. And for the first time ever, the vast majority are families that are bringing children with them to exploit what, uh, what we understand are loopholes in our asylum laws. Nunca será piñata de ningún gobierno extranjero. Welcome to Trumpcast from Los Angeles, California. I'm Leon Krause. It's great to be with you once again. President Trump launched his re-election campaign this week in Florida almost exactly four years after he began his improbable road to the presidency in that bizarre rally inside Trump Tower in New York. Back then, Trump seemed like a joke. His nativist fear-mongering seemed like just an excuse for his lack of actual policy insight. And yet, four years later, here we are. Trump's obsessions haven't changed one bit. The fight against immigration is still at the center of his political persona, and Mexico, my country of origin, is still his villain of choice. It has been a couple of weeks now since Trump successfully blackmailed the Mexican government into granting unprecedented concessions on immigration. He did it, I should add, and this is important, by breaking an unwritten rule of the bilateral relationship between Mexico and the United States. He used trade, one part of the agenda, to force action on another part of the agenda, migration and security. And make no mistake, the bullying worked. Because Mexico had never before sent thousands of troops to the southern border. Mexico had never before really agreed to receive tens of thousands of potential refugees sent back to the country to wait out their asylum requests. Mexico had never set up an urgent government commission to deal with immigration the Mexican government has recently replaced the man in charge of immigration in the country from a respected and humanitarian-minded academic to the former head of the prison system. These are all punitive, unprecedented steps. Now, the Mexican government has less than 40 days to show some progress or tariffs will be on the table again. Those of you who are longtime listeners of the podcast know that we here on Trumpcast saw this crisis coming. This is not new. I was there in Tijuana a few months ago. We had guests on who explained the severity of the situation. People are escaping from an impossible, impossible crisis in Central America. Poverty, crime, violence, and even declining agricultural yields due to climate change. They are not leaving. No one's really leaving because they just feel like it. That's just not the case. The only way to address this, really address this crisis, is with immigration reform here and an ambitious development plan in Central America. But the Trump administration just doesn't want to see it that way. It has actually suspended all aid to the region as punishment. That decision will only perpetuate the cycle of poverty and emigration. And now, with the close collaboration of the Mexican government. We will talk about immigration, Mexico, Trump, Central America, after the tweets. When our country had no debt and built everything from highways to the military with cash, we had a big system of tariffs. Now we allow other countries to steal our wealth, treasure, and jobs. But no more. The USA is doing great with unlimited upside into the future. I'm at Camp David working on many things, including Iran. We have a great 
direct economy tariffs have been very helpful both with respect to the huge dollars coming in and on helping to make good trade deals. The Dow heading to best June in 80 years. Stock market, best June in 50 years. If I didn't have the phony witch hunt going on for three years, and if the fake news media and their partner in crime, the Democrats, would have played it straight, I would be way up in the polls right now, with our economy winning by 20 points. But I'm winning anyway. The fake news doesn't report it, but Republican enthusiasm is at an all-time high. Look what is going on in Orlando, Florida right now. People have never seen anything like it, unless you play guitar. Going to be wild. See you later. Stephanie Leutert is the director of the Central America-Mexico Policy Initiative at the Strauss Center for International Security and Law at UT Austin. Welcome, Stephanie. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Let me first ask you this. Some people say that the current situation between the Northern Triangle countries of Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador, Mexico, and the United States, what we're seeing is actually not a crisis. It's a manufactured crisis. Do you agree? I think there's elements of truth to that. I would certainly say it depends on the perspective of who's answering that question. Now, if you are uh, the Border Patrol, for example, and you're in El Paso, or if you're in the Rio Grande Valley right now, and you're looking at the number of people who are arriving, then it's going to feel like a crisis because the number of people has increased dramatically and the resources at your disposal have not. If you are asking the migrants themselves if it feels like a crisis, they might also answer yes, because they've had to leave because of the large numbers of people. But with that said, there are elements that make this a lot worse than it needs to be. Primarily what I said about the, the lack of increased resources for the Border Patrol and for CBP, it's the role of the governments of not just the US government, but also the Mexican government, and of course, the Central American governments to put in policies that would, even if not stop migration altogether would help to mitigate the consequences or help to mitigate the worst aspects of it. And we haven't seen that. We've seen U.S. policies that have continually aggravated the situation. Um, it has not addressed the core roots of why people are leaving or even when they get to the border has not invested in increased personnel to process them. So it depends who is answering that question. I certainly for some people can feel like a crisis, but it doesn't necessarily have to be a crisis. And in fact, it's gotten worse because of the policy decisions of the different governments. How would you describe what's going on in the Northern Triangle, Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador? What's going on in those three countries for a while now, actually? It really is going to look different across each country. And even within each country, there's a broad range of variation for why people are leaving. But to kind of do a high-level overview, I'll start with El Salvador, which has actually seen the least number of people, declining numbers in the past few years. Now, when most people, or when, when you look at where most people from El Salvador are coming from, they're coming from urban areas. That makes sense because of the three countries, El Salvador is the, the country that has the highest levels of urbanization. But when you also, in kind of survey after survey, uh, looking at people's reasons for coming, you also start to see that a lot of people from El Salvador keep mentioning gangs and extortion and forced recruitment um, and all of these uh, or domestic violence often wrapped with uh, a gang connection. 
And so I would say that if you're looking at, at El Salvador, there really is quite a strong connection to the gangs of why people are leaving. There are other factors as well, but that one really comes out a lot. Now, move over to Honduras, and you see gangs and security coming up, especially in the cities, in Tegucigalpa, in San Pedro Sula. Every time people talk about why they're leaving, uh, they usually mention, to some extent, the rampant insecurity, the fact that they feel like they can't live their lives because of gang violence. Now, there are other factors, though, that come out uh, in, in Honduras, and that's primarily because there's an urban-rural divide. So those insecurity factors I'm mentioning, those are happening in the big cities. But if you start looking at where people are coming from in the past few years, it's increasingly from the rural areas. And so there you have to go one step further and kind of trace out why are people leaving, say, western Honduras or some of the places along the, the coast or uh, Olancho in the east. And it tends to be when you talk to migrants, they'll, they'll say, it's not profitable to work in rural areas anymore because the, pri the price of coffee is low, because we can no longer grow staple crops, because there's climate change, the mm -hmm. coffee plague, all these factors. And so often if people don't leave directly from the rural areas, they might go to the cities, find similar dynamics, and then leave. And Guatemala, if you track out where people are coming from, it's a lot of the, the same phenomena that you saw in the rural areas of Honduras. People are coming from the Altiplano, the highlands. The Western highlands, where climate change has been brutal. Exactly. And so what does that do? Climate change for some people wipes out their crops, and then they're left with nothing. For others, it's like a tax, and it's an added cost, because maybe you didn't plant your seeds at the right time, or maybe the rains didn't come, and so your crops didn't grow as well. So your yield just isn't as good. So you have less money. Um, and so it's a, it adds a tax and on top of when you add on other things as well, you have whole communities, whole sectors that no longer are becoming profitable when combined with low global commodity prices. And so you have a lot of these things that are all coming together, add on top of that uh, corrupt government uh, governance, add on top of that uh, discrimination against LGBT community, the LGBT communities there, um, domestic violence family reunification, and you have this, all these factors kind of combining together to make life feel pretty unbearable for a lot of people who are living in these countries. So it's poverty, hopelessness, violence that's generating this, this situation. D Donald Trump insists that this exodus from Central America amounts to a national security crisis for the United States. He has never really admitted that it's a humanitarian crisis. He says it's a national security crisis. He has described these people as a threat. Is there any truth to that at all? I think if you adhere to the national security definition of strict, there are people arriving at our borders, maybe uh, that's kind of the line of national security, then maybe there's an element. And really, I'm just grasping there because ultimately what we're really seeing is a humanitarian crisis, whether it's people fleeing violence and so in qualifying for asylum or people fleeing hunger, uh, which is another form of human, which requires other responses, perhaps not asylum, but uh, humanitarian aid or, or something of the like. It really is. Uh, but I actually, I want to say one thing on that, which is that he does view it, the Trump, Trump, Trump administration does view it as a national security crisis. And you see it not just in the rhetoric, but in the way they have responded to that. And by sending the, the uh, military down to the border, 
um, by investing in uh, barriers instead of investing in any of the types of things that you would imagine if you were trying to respond to a humanitarian crisis. So going back to the first question of does it feel like a crisis? Yes, and it's precisely because we're addressing what is largely a humanitarian crisis with national security policies. And so instead of solving the issue, we're just making it worse. Just a few months ago, during the last election cycle, for the first time, a debate was held in the city of Tijuana, a presidential debate. I had the privilege of moderating it, and the topics that we discussed with the candidates in Mexico included, again, for the first time, the humanitarian crisis that began in Central America, then moved through Mexico, and now has reached the United States. This was the first time that this was seriously discussed. Before that, It wasn't really in the public debate in Mexico. It wasn't debated in the public arena, the situation with Central American migrants and what was happening in the southern border of Mexico. What role has Mexico played in the last few years in this crisis? So first of all, I remember watching that debate and being astonished that Central American migration was one of the topics that was being seriously discussed. And it was great. And it was also, as you mentioned, it, was, it felt monumental because for the previous years before that, it really hadn't been a topic that had gained national attention. Now, that isn't to say that Mexico hasn't been doing or hasn't been even investing in a migration enforcement or it hasn't been a big topic on a policy level. If you go back to 1998, that was one of the first southern border policies. It was Operation Sealing the Border that Mexico had. And it was not just migration. It was primarily actually drug trafficking, human trafficking. But stopping irregular migration and smuggling was an element. And then fast forward a few years in 2001, and you have Plan Sur, which kind of looked a lot like the 2014 program of Frontera Sur, the southern border program. Mm -hmm. um, and both of those programs were aimed at stopping Central Americans transiting through the country to the United States. And in fact, if you trace out deportations, apprehensions of people over time, the numbers are have been at sometimes the deportation numbers have been higher than in the U.S. So Mexico has long had an active role. Now, specifically, what has happened in the last few years? Well, after you saw an enforcement spike in 2014, 2015, right when all of the unaccompanied minors were arriving at the U.S.-Mexico border, the number of operations began to decrease in 2016. And then a little further in 2017, and so you kind of see this steady decrease in both operations and apprehensions until you get to the uh, 2018, the end of the Peña Nieto era, and the arrival of uh, López Obrador. And by the time López Obrador takes office, the number of apprehensions is pretty low, not perhaps in terms of just the absolute number, but in terms of the amount of people that we're estimating were crossing through the country at that time. Stephanie, policy also changed in Mexico, right? The López Obrador administration offered a more humanitarian approach to the way Mexico dealt with immigration from Central America after the brutal uh, Frontera Sur program that was uh, uh, criticized by, by gr groups like Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International. I mean, Mexico really, really mistreated and mishandled the refugee wave during the last years of the Peña Nieto administration. So López Obrador offered a more humanitarian approach, but then that sort of backfired because that uh, generated, as I understand it, in the last few months, an upsurge actually in the number of migrants coming through Mexico. Is that right? Yes. 
certainly going back to the debate that you mentioned in what Lopez Obrador was saying on the campaign trail when they would talk about Central American migration. And in fact, his platform was the most developed. It was extremely pro-migrant, extremely pro-human rights of migrants. And when he came in, he named a head of the National Migration Institute, who was a, an academic, who was extremely pro-human rights, and whose rhetoric surrounding immigration was uh, pretty much that we should be focusing on protecting people instead of apprehending and deporting them. Now, exactly as you mentioned, during the first few months, uh, as the caravans were arriving, instead of having the optics and the response uh, of having the federal police meet these caravans at the southern border, such as what we saw uh, in the previous caravans uh, back in October, uh, during the last few months of the Peña Nieto administration, instead of having that kind of terrible migrants on the bridge and the federal police not letting anyone pass, they said, we're going to try a different technique and we're going to allow people, when these big caravans, we're going to give them humanitarian visas. Now, that seems like uh, a pretty good uh, strategy and practice. Now, a humanitarian visa allows uh, the recipient one year in the country to mm -hmm. work, to go, their kids can go to school. It also serves as a way to get on a bus and go straight to the U.S.-Mexico border and, and seek asylum without being apprehended and detained. And most of the people in these caravans did that. So what happens? Within February, they issue over 12,000 humanitarian visas. It contributed to the jump in numbers that we saw in kind of February, March, April, May. It certainly doesn't make up the entire increase. But right after that, you see this. It's like if you map out humanitarian visas, there's a spike up to 12,000, and then it just drops down all the way to even last month in April, the last month they have data for. It's just a couple hundred. Mm -hmm. Why? Because of that, what you mentioned, the U.S. response that it was strong and, and kind of very quick to say, oh, wow, look at all these people arriving in Mexico. You have to do something. And it seems that that uh, human rights approach got overruled, and now it's pivoted 180 degrees to, again, an enforcement strategy. And this crisis reached a turning point a couple of weeks ago when Donald Trump threatened to impose tariffs on Mexico if the new Mexican government, led by Andrés Manuel López Obrador, didn't focus fully on enforcement and bring down the number of people reaching the border. In the end, Mexico's government agreed to take unprecedented measures. Did the outcome of that negotiation surprise you? I was surprised that the Mexican government even went to have the negotiations in the way that it did. I understand certainly um, the fear of the tariffs, but I also think that uh, the response so quickly It wasn't what I was expecting, to be entirely honest. I think I was expecting perhaps a little more time and uh, a little more realization that tariffs would also hurt the U.S. economy and maybe they should continue to keep the bilateral relationship compartmentalized mm -hmm. to talk just about the economy or just security or just migration. Now, is the outcome surprising? Uh, I think that in the short term, what they were able to, what Mexico was able to achieve, it's a 45-day reprieve. It certainly is all going to depend on how much they actually implement one of the parts of the agreement, which has stepped up Mexican enforcement. And it would appear from the last few weeks that they are actually, especially with the new head of the National Migration Institute, that they really are taking that seriously. And they're going to try their best to crack down on the number of people crossing through. And if nothing else, they will instill fear and an uncertainty on the people in Central America who might wait a little longer before trying to 
to make that journey. So I think in terms of what the what it achieved, what it included, it's a little surprising that they did the negotiations in the first place, given that they did what they walked away with seems fairly reasonable. But again, we're going to have to revisit this in 45 days to see the results, because if the U.S. doesn't deem them to be sufficient, we're going to be back to something that could be a lot more intense. And that mm-hmm. is uh, also a question mark of why exactly the Mexican government tied their hands to that. But we'll have to see what exactly comes out at that point. Yeah, closer to 35 days now or even less the deadline that the Trump administration agreed with Mexico. There have been voices who have suggested in the United States that Trump actually got nothing in return for suspending the tariff threat, that Mexico simply offered measures that were already on the table, basically that the Lopez Obrador administration played Trump. This is simply not true. Although I wish it was true, it's not true. The Mexican government agreed to unprecedented measures, the number of troops along the southern border and the southern part of Mexico, the fact that the head of Mexico's main immigration authority changed, the fact that there was a new commission focused on migration set up by the Mexican government, that the Mexican government agreed another unprecedented action to expand its collaboration with the remaining Mexico program. How do you explain that so many voices in the United States insist that Donald Trump got nothing. Again, I wish it was the case, but it's not. I think there's a lot of people in the U.S. who would love to snap their fingers and have Central American migration stop. And because they can't do that, uh, they look to Mexico and they want Mexico to snap their fingers and make it all stop. Now, I do think there's a part of that and there's a part that feels like Mexico's not doing as much as they could. That, in terms of enforcement, if you're viewing it from a strictly enforcement perspective. Um, And that, again, if you talk about the amount of enforcement versus the number going through, that actually might be true because the number of people who are being apprehended as a percent of those going crossing through has actually decreased uh, over the past few years. But leaving that aside, I actually think that it's not going to be the truth that uh, the Trump administration didn't get anything. Because as all the things you mentioned, Mexico is stepping up and taking a lot of steps towards greater enforcement. Just yesterday, I spoke to someone in uh, La Tecnica, which is across from Frontera Corazal. It's a city on the Guatemalan border, and it's a popular crossing point for a Mm -hmm. lot of uh, migrants and smugglers. And he told me that the smugglers right now are waiting. They haven't left Guatemala. They're waiting because, as he put it, INM is getting a lot more strict. The National Guard is coming and they don't want to lose money by taking people into Mexico and then being apprehended. And so they're just waiting to see what happens and what comes next. And so even just that threat, I mean, the threat, the Mexican government's rhetoric, it does seem in the very short immediate term to be having an effect. Now, I think when we get the numbers for June and we see how many people actually were apprehended along the border, preliminary reports show that the numbers are decreasing, then maybe some of those voices you mentioned will go away and people will say, oh, look at Trump, the great deal maker. He negotiated with Mexico and the numbers went down. So you might see a shift, but I think we'll we'll kind of have to see how it plays out if they continue to step up enforcement, if the numbers actually go down and how long that lasts. Now, Mexico's troubles will extend to the country's northern border with the United States. You spoke about, we've spoken about the southern border of Mexico, and let's talk about the northern border, which is, of course, the southern border of the United States. The López Obrador administration agreed, like I said, to take in every potential refugee. Again, that's in the agreement. Every 
all potential refugees sent back by the Trump administration to wait out their asylum processes in Mexico. Having seen the shelters in Tijuana, I can tell you that uh, that's a recipe for potential disaster. Of course, you've seen the shelters yourself as well, because this is what you do. This is your area of expertise. Is Mexico ready for such an undertaking? We're talking about thousands upon thousands of people gathered along the border cities in Mexico. We've already seen instances of violence. It's potentially terrifying, to be honest. Mexico is absolutely not ready. Um, that's the short answer. Right now, we've only seen the migrant protection protocols being rolled out in Tijuana, Ciudad Juarez, and Mexicali. Now, what they're talking about is rolling it out across, as you mentioned, the entire border, so that all people who are seeking asylum will be returned to the Mexican side to wait their cases in the United States. Now, what they've done, I mean, Tijuana, Ciudad Juarez, number one, there's no real structure for how people are going to live. Um, first of all, they're not receiving humanitarian visas. They're entering back in the country on kind of humanitarian passes. They don't seem to be getting, by any metrics or any measures, uh, work permits to work legally. Uh, and they're, and so how, if you're not making money, can you afford to live anywhere other than a shelter? And they're the shelters are overcrowded. They're in limbo for months. Now, those cities are dangerous on their own, right? So moving beyond just the humanitarian side and going into the security, those are, cities are, are dangerous. But they aren't, they are also safer, roughly, more safe than, for example, Reynosa, Nuevo Laredo, or Piedras Negras. Because mm -hmm. in those cities, you have the Gulf Cartel and the factions of the Zetas, who have a money-making stream dedicated just to kidnapping migrants. It's not opportunistic actors. It is an actual part of their criminal business model. Um, and we haven't seen anyone returned uh, to these cities yet. Now, beyond those uh, shelters that are already completely over capacity right now, if you start adding back tens of thousands of people, thousands of people to cities where the criminal group in charge makes a large percent of its revenue off of kidnapping deportees and migrants, you're really setting yourself up for a really aggravated security and humanitarian crisis. And I haven't seen any kind of large scale strategy for how Mexico is going to start dealing with this. Or small scale, I should add. <laughs> any. You're right. <laughs> There's one last side to this debate that the Trump administration simply refuses to acknowledge, which is development in Central America, nation building, Marshall Plan kind of situation. Now, not only is the United States government, the current one, uninterested in supporting aid initiatives in the region, it has withdrawn every cent from all three countries involved as punishment for their roles in the migrant exodus. How can one reconcile the immense concern of the Trump administration with their absolute disregard for this angle of this, this drama. So this goes back, I'm going to repeat this point one more time, but the Trump administration is approaching this through a set of policies that do not, as you mentioned, they do not address the core issues at hand. And so they're only exacerbating the, the problem and the challenges. And so you see that clearly, as you mentioned, with aid. I mean, if we are really trying to get at the bottom of what's going on, perhaps the aid that we have uh, given to Central America hasn't been that effective. But instead of trying to understand, okay, what is going on? Where can our aid dollars be more effective? Is it supporting coffee trusts? 
Is it providing small-scale insurance to these farmers? Instead of thinking like that, which is what you would imagine you would do if you were actually trying to address some of these challenges, the Trump administration said, or Trump himself just said, nope, we're not going to give it to them. Um, It's just, you know, we're going to not give any aid to them until they fix the problem. It's a lot of sticks with no carrots. And I think it's this approach throughout, um, I think I called it national security perspective, but really more than anything, it's just the looking tough perspective. It's we're going to cut off their aid because they don't help us. We're going to threaten Mexico because we're really tough. Uh, We have a migrant caravan show up in Piedras Negras. And so instead of processing humanitarian requests at the Eagle Pass port of entry, we're going to send 500 uh, Texas public safety vehicles and and kind of do a show of force on the river, blink our lights at Mexico and say, we're here and we're out, but we're not going to put one person more for processing Mm -hmm. asylum claims, which is the root of the issue. And so it's this entire perspective of if we are just tougher, if we are just stronger, and yeah, if we just act really tough and we take a tough line, then people won't come. And that's just not true. It just makes the situation worse. It hurts our bilateral relationships and it hurts our ability to cooperate with Mexico and with Central America on a range of issues that go well beyond migration. By the way, that's the case in Mexico as well. The current administration has slashed the budget of the government agencies that take care of refugees and migrants. Just to give our listeners an idea, and the number is absurd, it's beyond absurd. The COMAR, that's the name of the agency that deals with refugees, protects refugees in Mexico, has a budget of, wait for it, $1 million a year. $1 million for the whole year. That's million with an M. It's just absolutely incredible. Now, the Mexican government will have to go back to Washington in a few weeks, like you said, to try and prove that their new punitive strategy is working. The people who are going to judge whether or not it has been successful basically is the American government. They will consult with Mexico per the agreement, but it will be Donald Trump himself and his uh, team who will decide whether or not this has been successful. Do you think they will succeed at least in their first exam uh, a few weeks from now when they go to Washington? Summer might help, right, with with the numbers that uh, usually go down during the beginning of summer. But do you think they will pass the Trump exam? It's ridiculous. <laughs> will they? It is ridiculous. I think I think it will depend 100 percent on the numbers that CBP presents to them. Uh, I think if there is a sharp decrease, they will declare victory. They will declare themselves the great deal makers, uh, and then they can walk away. If it stays pretty high, they're going to demand uh, something else. That would be my guess. Now, my guess, uh, my totally kind of listening to a few different anecdotes and and pulling it together is that the numbers will go down. And we are seeing some uh, preliminary numbers or we're kind of hearing reports of preliminary numbers that they have gone down. Um, And I think hearing from smugglers saying that they're holding off to wait till things get normal again. I mean, that's really what's going to make the difference. If smugglers decide, okay, we're going to stay in Central America for a few weeks and and really see if the National Guard is going to materialize, if they're really actually going to deport as many people as they say they're going to do. Um, I think if if those factors come together and there is a decrease, um, we might see uh, Mexico kind of emerging from this. I don't know what level they're going to have to get to, to to really appease the the people in D.C. to the point where they let it go. Um, but I do think if they're able to do it, they might be able to 
at least put off the, the safe third country agreement or other kind of more intense measures for now. But with that said, with the caveat that they've also, by creating this agreement, they've set themselves up for a situation where, great, the numbers are down this month, but next month, you know, exactly. or in two months, they go up again. And then what? Are we going to be back in the same situation of kind of endless negotiations at every month where the number of Central Americans uh, dictates the bilateral relations? And I, I think that's probably not a dynamic that is healthy for the bilateral relations, um, is healthy for actually creating sustainable development or migration policy. But it looks like the situation that we're, we've ended up in. And that's the tragedy of it all, right? I mean, it's, it's a safe bet to say that uh, immigration will remain part of the debate in the year and a half until the election because Trump, Trump just won't let go. No, he really won't. And I focus on Central American migration. I, I study this. And I, I will say it is certainly a challenge, but it really shouldn't hold uh, this kind of around-the-clock attention that it does. It should absolutely receive funding, humanitarian assistance, uh, attention, But there are so many other issues out there um, in both countries that are really important and that affect most Americans or Mexicans' lives more on a daily basis. And they're completely drowned out um, by this really intense focus on Central American migration right now. So it's it on one hand, it's, it is good that we are paying attention because it is a, a pressing humanitarian challenge. But it has really sucked a lot of the air out of the room regarding a lot of other important issues that we're just no longer talking about. And that's the situation. Stephanie Leutert is the director of the Central America-Mexico Policy Initiative at the Strauss Center for International Security and Law at the beautiful UT Austin. <laughs> Stephanie, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And that's it for today's show. Please tell us what you think. I'm at Leon Krause, L-E-O-N-K-R-A-U-Z-E on Twitter. And the show, as always, is at Real Trumpcast. Before we go, sign up for Slate Plus. It's $35 for the first year, and it gets you all of Slate Podcasts ad-free, exciting perks, and best of all, you will be supporting what we do, our work. So go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. That's slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan with help from René Pineda. John Di Domenico is our voice of Donald Trump. Find him at johnnyd23 on Twitter. I'm Leon Krause from the beautiful Los Angeles, California. Thanks again. Muchas gracias for listening to Trumpcast. The main problem is our economy is so fantastic. Lowest unemployment, great stock market. Everything's going great. This is why the numbers are up on the crossings, but we're going to stop them. And the wall's almost done. It's almost done. A couple of weeks, it'll be totally finished.